Welcome to Out of Gage. I'm Janet Nodar, Senior Editor for Breakbulk and Project Cargo with the Journal of Commerce. During the virtual 2021 Journal of Commerce Breakbulk and Project Cargo Conference, industry leaders shared their insights into what continues to be an unusually tumultuous market. Our speakers included shipper and supply chain executives with unmatched experience in this sector and subject matter experts discussing crucially important topics. This podcast series, Out of Gage, provides insights from key sessions and presentations from the 2021 conference. Thank you for joining us. I'm happy to have with me today Chris Elsner uh, with IHS Market. We will be uh, discussing the oil and gas outlook. So oil and gas related project cargo is a mainstay component of the project logistics supply chain. It provides project cargo volumes for carriers, highly specialized work for logistics service providers, and large complex construction projects for the EPCs and manufacturers that build sites and fabricate materials for international and national oil company clients. However, the oil and gas market is evolving ever more rapidly. While no one thinks that oil and gas will abruptly disappear, we are at a genuine global flex point regarding the global energy mix. We are looking at enduring structural changes when it comes to energy generation and decarbonization. Post-pandemic, post-oil price crash, and thanks to a growing and complex set of pressures and policies from governments, investors, and society, we are unlikely to return to business as usual when it comes to oil and gas and the CapEx projects that support it. So what's the energy mix going to look like five, 10, or more years out? And what are the implications of a changing investment environment? To dig into these and other questions about what is happening now and what we can expect in future, I am talking today with Chris Elsner. He's an associate director with IHS Markets Executive Briefing Service. Um, he, he advises executive teams on trends in global oil and gas markets, as well as developments in energy transition strategies and financial flows between traditional and low carbon energy technologies. IHS Market is the parent company of the Journal of Commerce. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Definitely. It's my pleasure. Thanks. All right. So first question, what role does oil and gas play in the global energy mix now? And how should we expect that to change over time? Okay. Thank you. This is, you know, one of the critical points, obviously, for oil and gas in particular. However, we must, when we're talking, you know, somewhat in the abstract and in the long term about oil and gas supply in their projects, we also have to discuss their divergent roles or functions that they play uh, within our economy. Of course, oil primarily used in the transport sector. Uh, even at this point in the U.S., most of our greenhouse gas emissions uh, originate in the transport sector. So that's that's really where the focus on the demand for liquids and oil should should be while we're discussing climate change and the implications strategically for oil companies. Whereas gas has a different position, a different carbon intensity, and really does feed into the power stack in terms of our, our demand for power. It has become very cost economic with coal and has been penetrating the power mix with a lot of force. And so those divergences in the use of oil and gas should be at the forefront when we're talking about long-term trends. In addition, for oil in particular, petrochemicals will also feature centrally in a long-term discussion of demand for oil. Mm -hmm. Overall, however, it should be remembered that while we're discussing all of these low-carbon technologies and the energy transition, which has seen a lot of growth 
the discussion of scale needs really to be ever present to understand just how reliant we are still on hydrocarbons. By 2050, oil and natural gas combined still comprise up to 55% of our energy mix in 2050. Uh, coal obviously will be degraded, but oil and natural gas still feature prominently. And even in our green case from 2020 in our IHS market long-term scenarios, we still see oil and natural gas come in at just under 50%. And so there will have to be a lot of shifts structurally, both in the power generation and along the power supply chain, as well as in the transport sector. And not only whether electric vehicles can penetrate the overall fleet, but also where do fuel efficiency standards also really weigh on potential growth uh, and the arc for demand growth as we really start to discuss not only whether the slope of demand growth will slow, but also an absolute peak in liquids demand that we see coming in the early 2030s and plateauing through the 2040s. But that's a real investment question when you deal in 5, 10, and 15-year time horizons. How do you expect CapEx spending to change over time? Now, this is one of the great questions I'm going to really start to look at oil price cycles because that's really driven how upstream spending has really evolved over time. Um, before the onset of U.S. tight oil and the unconventional space that really upended the economics of conventional oil production development, really traditionally you had those integrated majors and independents where upstream spending was largely dominated total annual organic capital spend to the tune of maybe 80% plus of a total capital spend would be spent on the upstream. This was driven by, in large part, exploration spend, trying to organically grow your reserves and focused almost unflinchingly on that reserve replacement ratio, which means every year you want to replace every single barrel that you produced that year and sold into the market so that you always have a very high value in terms of your oil reserves. Mm -hmm. And so developing these reserves were also conventional. They were largely on similar timelines in a matter of years. Now, really with the emergence of U.S. tight oil, you had the first real sort of truncation or a reduction in the duration of oil price cycle. And so because it's not a matter of years, but actually a matter of months that U.S. unconventionals can bring a significant amount of oil to bear on the market, that means that essentially you can't be left in the middle of an investment price cycle. And so that's really what happened in the first oil price collapse of 2014 and 2015, uh -huh. is that there were these majors that had been heavily invested in mega projects, such as Kazakhstan, Australian LNG, and all of a sudden their revenues got cut in half, all the while their investment cycle still demanded a lot of capital expenditures that would end up bleeding from their bottom line. And this is really cascaded through to investor preferences to see returns in the near term and essentially just a capital drain from the oil and gas market more generally uh, that essentially have really burdened upstream investment outside of the United States for the past several years. And so what we have beyond that is the complication of that global peak in liquids demand growth over the next 10 to 20 years that I mentioned previously. It really starts to put a strain on 
a mega project in which you have to build out all sorts of infrastructure, including the pipeline infrastructure, the gathering infrastructure, and really forced people once again to focus on costs, focus on standing infrastructure, scale down the total size of the project. With that, you scale down all of the associated risks, the execution risks, the financing risks, et cetera. And so we do see a general shift in the risk that companies are willing to take on when they do green light final investment decisions for these large projects, not to say that they'll disappear completely. And that has huge implications for the project cargo supply chain, obviously. The shift to smaller projects, to onshore coming in and filling in the gaps, to, uh, yeah, and the shift away from mega projects, which were a driver for project cargo for years and years. years Absolutely. However, it should be said that because U.S. tight oil has continually collapsed the oil price and generally suppressed returns overall for the sector in general, Mm-hmm. We are seeing and we believe that, you know, not only 2014 and 15, they did it yet again when WTI exceeded $65 a barrel in 2018. We saw another collapse of 40% in the oil price in the fourth quarter of 2018. And then, of course, COVID was more of a demand-driven oil price collapse. But each time this happens, the U.S. and the onshore ENPs have felt a lot of the financial pain. And so at this point, the U.S. tight oil will become more of a stable source of supply. And so it won't be as volatile simply because they need a return. And so investors have seen promises of high returns and high volumes. Mm-hmm. And they have not seen those returns materialize in the long run. So now they're demanding pay down long-term debt. I would like to see cash dividends, share buybacks. I would like to see a lot of financial value created before you start to return rigs to grow production volumes. And so the large independents have heard this loud and clear. And as a result, uh, on top of that, the majors have are very prominent, particularly Chevron and Exxon in the US onshore. And they are restraining their rig activity uh, because there are these offshore projects that are somewhat larger, although more concentrated in their basin location. Uh, for example, Guiana and Suriname or offshore Brazil. These offer reserves at the scale and the costs associated where that might be prioritized even over U.S. onshore. And so if U.S. onshore can remain stable and not constantly overwhelm the world market, Uh then offshore actually looks and conventional looks to be very competitive in terms of both costs because of the consistent cash flows you get. Whereas on U.S. unconventional, you're constantly getting those decline rates of 60 to 80% from each well within the first year. And so that really drives a financial rationale where the sheen has come off of U.S. tight oil and is returning somewhat to the conventional offshore. So we've touched on this just a little bit, but just to clarify, are we going to see mega projects like we have in the past? Uh, will they continue to exist or um, mega projects, meaning projects that cost a billion plus? Well, at least, yes. Or is that a thing of the past? So it's not a total relic, but the instances will be somewhat few and far between. And once again, remain prominent in those larger basins that have become highly prospective and has garnered uh, the attention of a lot of the, particularly the IOCs. And so for certain international oil companies, especially those that were caught out, in 2012 and 2013, already seeing their returns fall over time, 
be even in the age of $100 a barrel, they don't want to be caught out again and right. having some albatross around their financial performance. And so producers such as ENI in Italy have sworn off large greenfield projects such as your Kashagan or Karachaganak in Kazakhstan. However, those that have gotten in on the ground floor in places such as Guyana focus especially on Exxon and Hess and their more than 15 discoveries in Guyana. There's a lot of road to go. Um, and they know that they can produce at cost very competitively, even in a downward price cycle at 40 to 50 a barrel and really break even. And so that's why you are seeing a prioritization if you have access to those assets to develop those particularly large projects. They're seeing prioritization so that they can rush them the cash flow rather than okay. sort of prolonging the investment cycle because of all those risks that we were talking about that grow both from U.S. tight oil and peak demand. Okay. And so we're really seeing some cost reduction from conventional that might outstrip U.S. tight oil in terms of the structural cost reduction. So technology being leveraged. That's interesting. Itself. Is it possible that we could eventually see underfunding for oil and gas projects? Well, some would argue that this has already begun from a very real CapEx investment from oil companies standpoint. That is still into the future, particularly since the demand growth that most of the market projects coming in the second half of this year due to the vaccination rollout, mm -hmm. due to increased mobility by car, by air, by ship, et cetera. We have not seen that materialize quite yet. And there's a lot of sort of supply growth uncertainty in the near term, particularly with the Iran nuclear talks still ongoing another potential slug of supply. Mm -hmm. And so right now, I think we're seeing a lot of companies retrench for 2021. And so you've seen a lot of majors say that they're going to remain in their sort of 2020 CapEx range for the foreseeable future. In terms of our upstream spending report at IHS, we see a marked increase from 2021 to 2022 because that certainty starts to really come back into the market. And we do think demand growth will outstrip supply growth. So that's more of the short term, we'll call it defunding, maybe underfunding until more certainty really develops. But then there's the long term potential for underfunding. And really, this is where you see capital has been fleeing oil and gas since that sort of 2014-2015 timeframe. Even with $100 a barrel, they've gone negative annually a couple of years now in the last five. And so this is really, once again, upstream is no longer as dominant within the CapEx mix. And not only that, companies want to use their cash flows for different purposes. We discussed the dividends, Mm -hmm. deleveraging, paying down your debt. But now we have an additional sort of climate change and climate action have provided yet another potential use of your capital. Should you stretch your strategy to try to expose yourself as a company to that growth that you might see in the energy transition, you need money in order to invest in those types of forays or diversification. And so there's yet another potential source of investment that is not upstream CapEx that will pull on especially the majors overall. And so the investors are not looking for oil and gas investments as much anymore because of the underperformance. And so when you see carbon regulation and carbon prices starting to edge upward, 
and those long-term oil prices really start to fall, the financial rationale of your business model becomes strained. And so your oil becomes more expensive to produce and the revenues it'll create is now structurally coming down in the long term. And so that has really forced European IOCs uh, to make the shift that much more quickly. And so that's why we're seeing all these net zero announcements, mm-hmm. these fairly aggressive investments into renewable energy, EVs, battery factories to, in terms of Total in France. That's really what's driving it is not only the poor returns and the capital fleeing from oil and gas to a certain extent from the financial sector, but also that low carbon technologies are offering for now, seemingly good returns, a lot of investor interest and low cost of capital as a result. And so really the slowdown in upstream investments in the short term are now being driven by huge long-term strategy decisions. And so you could see boom bus because the upstream is being underfunded because they're changing long-term strategy and having to build credibility with investors in the short term, even though it's a long-term time horizon. And so you might see those disconnects between investing and supply growth, even as demand grows through 2030. And so there's a mismatch in time horizons between demand and supply growth. And what will really need to happen is smaller companies stepping in and supplying that incremental supply that we demand or you'll see price inflation because the upstream has been underfunded. Or both, right? Or both. So my next question, which again, you've, you've started um, discussing, but just to nail it down, what are the international oil companies doing to reconfigure themselves? And what roles will they play as the energy transition unfolds? That will, once again, and I think that's a good segue from my last statement. It'll, it'll absolutely differ completely based upon not only what your current capabilities are and your current carbon intensity is of your overall portfolio, but the function you really see your company playing Mm -hmm. in that future energy mix. And even more importantly, what your investors are really trying to pressure you to do. IOCs are projected to really ramp up that low carbon investment, partially because we have you know, not only governments making net zero, but you have asset managers such as BlackRock or Vanguard and asset owners or pension funds, sovereign wealth funds that have become very active in either selling off stock if a company they think is too carbon intensive or really using large stakes to increase pressure on the company to adjust its behavior so that it becomes more sustainable in the long term and decarbonizes its operations or its overall impact on the global supply chain. But the visions that really sort of lie at the center of those are driven by your capability to diversify and mm-hmm. your vision for the future. So the European IOCs see themselves as integrated energy providers from a wind farm or a gas field all the way down to the distribution of power that those feedstocks generate. Uh, Others see themselves more as just playing the role of trader. They do not necessarily want to own large renewable projects. Still others will really just focus on carbon capture. And so they really do think that carbon mitigation is acceptable even in the long term. 
whereas a lot of European IOCs want to see absolute emissions or no emissions in the first place that we might have to offset or mitigate at all. And so mm -hmm. the fundamental visions still differ completely. And we're only just talking about the large diversified capital heavy companies that can diversify into some integrated energy trading function in the supply chain. Smaller ENPs are still very much at the beginning phase of understanding what their emissions mean, right. what investors expect of them, what conceivably they can do alone in order to ameliorate this problem, or whether it should be industry-led or regulated actively by governments or international cooperation. All of these issues are very far from resolved. And that's what makes this an exciting and very quickly evolving sector that will constantly be impacting the available capital for upstream oil and gas. And so that really is balancing all of those different drivers. Or for example, governments or NOCs, they have much different pressures on them for their company strategies and behavior than a publicly invested integrated oil company. And so this difference in pressures, sources of pressure, and definitely down to the natural gas in certain regions is still considered environmentally conscious because it's used to diversify away from coal. Mm -hmm. And so we also have to remember that demographically speaking, economically speaking, when we ask large emerging economies to reduce their carbon emissions absolutely, they're doing this in the context of growing economies, in some cases rapidly growing economies, and that adds to the challenge to really abate those emissions, whereas the OECD mature economies, they have demographics and a more stable in terms of economic growth, and so it's not as challenging to achieve emissions reduction in a context of maybe stable or generally slow economic growth. We're almost to the end of our time, but I want to tackle one more thing, Excellent. Uh, which we discussed in the past, the issue of emission scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three, and particularly who's responsible for scope three emissions and how you manage that. So thank you very much. And as I sort of mentioned previously, the U.S. majors, when they make their decarbonization targets, they largely have shorter-term time horizons, Exxon to 2025. Chevron just extended theirs to 2028. But they're focused on operational emissions, and that's to mean okay. the first two scopes. Scope mm -hmm. one is your direct emissions of your operations. Scope two is slightly more indirect. Largely, it's the emissions that come from the electric power that you source to maybe your corporate HQ or third-party provided uh, electricity. That would be generally scope two. For the oil and gas sector, there's a lot of downstream focus on what scope three is. And so if you listen to oil companies such as Shell, they'll talk about the carbon intensity or the carbon footprint of the products that they sell on to their customers. Right. And so that makes it sound more downstream. However, generally speaking, scope three really entails the rest of the supply chain. So while indirect, for example, a wind company would be worried in terms of their scope three about the steel that they're provided to mm -hmm. create the turbines and to construct the wind farms. That could also have large emissions given that steel is derived from coal and carbon. 
And so that scope three would be supply chain, but it would be from their suppliers and not necessarily their customers. However, for oil and gas, there really is this focus on scope three and a reticence, particularly amongst ENPs who only produce crude oil that will go into a refinery that they have no control over. Scope three is to be the emissions of the product that you sell on to the customer, but there hasn't been an agreement as to where essentially the consideration of your customer ends. And so a lot of people think that ENPs who produce crude oil should also be slightly responsible for the resultant emissions from the refined product in a car, for example. And so it is the lion's share of the question for oil and gas, because once again, for Shell, for example, they estimate that 90% of their total emissions is derived from scope three. Scope three. And so making that step is a huge promise to investors, to regulators, to governments, that you're taking on much more responsibility to mitigate carbon from your supply chain if you had just committed to a net zero in scopes one and two, which really only entails your your own direct production uh, and operations. It's just such a massive, almost gargantuan project to try to decarbonize your consumer's behavior. And so this is really where you can start differentiating even between those energy transition strategies of the majors. And so Total, for example, they've committed to scope three net zero by 2050, but only in Europe alone, because they have controllability from their downstream assets in that region that they can promise investors that they know the carbon mitigation down to the consumer. Whereas they sell on to a refiner in another region, for example, they can't ensure that that carbon will be mitigated. And so they're unwilling to commit to scope three outside of Europe because of that lack of controllability. It is so policy driven. It's just, it's very complex, but it's fascinating. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I will be coming back to you with more questions in the future, I am sure. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today for Out of Gage. I hope to see you in New Orleans next April 25th through 27th at the 2022 Break Bulk and Project Cargo Conference.